And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would shine the light of revelation of the knowledge of the eternal Son of God that we might see the Father today and we would behold glory. I ask that you would rip down with all the holy violence you would muster among us today anything that would keep us from seeing glory. Tear away any confused thought that says there's something else better for me than beholding you. Rip away any idolatry that says there's something better than you. Any practice that whether we realize it or not says anything is better than beholding your glory. Rule us well, your people. You are our chief shepherd. We are your people. Use disappointed means of grace to be gracious to your people. Lead us into the kingdom. And bring your kingdom and your will. May it be done today here among this body and on this earth as it's done in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 of Ephesians emphasized our blessings of being in Christ. And by the way, if... uh, if you're not, not familiar with where we've been over the past year and a half, all this stuff's online. And if you've missed stuff, you can go listen to it and, and get caught up. Or I could spend like the first half of our time together just summarizing. I'm just not going to do that today. So we're rolling, okay? Chapter 1 emphasized our blessings of being in Christ. We possess a deep and rich blessing. And we possess deep and rich blessings because we are in Christ. Chapter 1, we learned we've been chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. One of our great blessings of being in Christ. We have been predestined to adoption as sons. This glorious blessing. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We've been... Uh, We've had lavished upon us wisdom and insight to know the mystery of the Father's glorious will to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And there's so much in that that I just want to tear loose on right now and and we'll kind of get to it in a minute. But we've been given by the Holy Spirit lavished wisdom and insight to understand the mystery of God's will to unite everything under Christ and His kingdom. Part of your function as a believer is to dwell in that kingdom with your values and your actions, your belief structure. Uh, 
and to bring into that, through the preaching of the gospel, all the institutions and individuals that would come. And we have lavished wisdom and insight to understand and know that. We have an inheritance in Christ. We have the coming kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth that we will inherit and dwell upon and manage forever in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ face to face. It's our inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. And He's been given to us as our great counselor. We have the ongoing enlightening of our spiritual insight. The training of our discernment to understand and know Christ. We have the great power of Father, Son, and Spirit at work in us, on us, and for us in His kingdom. We have Christ as our great and chief shepherd, the head of the church, which is His body. But chapter 2 now is going to emphasize our great position of being in Christ. Those are the blessings we've spent time unpacking regarding our being in Christ. But chapter 2 is going to now emphasize our position because we are in Christ. Being in Christ has not only caused us to possess some amazing and glorious gifts, but being in Christ has caused our spiritual location to change. We're going to see here in chapter 2 our position in Christ, and we're going to see it by understanding our position outside of Christ. In other words, Paul is going to throw a contrast on us. And in that contrast, we are going to see the light of the glory of the beautiful work of the gospel in us, His people. And we're going to see how our position has changed. This belief that mankind is not completely fallen, and that some of his volitional capacity is intact, and man is somewhat okay, and... And, and capable and, and good to some degree lends itself to see salvation as merely a good decision on the part of the saved. And Jesus is sort of this begging and pleading 70's hippie guy that's mildly effeminate trying to convince as many people to come over to his side and not go to hell so that he can have some friends. That's not the meta-narrative of the Bible. That's not the meta-narrative told in Scripture. And I would argue that our commitment, our devotion, and our passion for worshiping the Lord as living sacrifices will suffer when we don't understand who we were. That's going to be the contrast He's going to give us. Who we were. But who we are now. And then even better, how and why we were rescued. Let me just say this to you. It had nothing to do with you or me. These three truths of who we were, who we are now, and why we were rescued are what we're going to see in contrast in Ephesians 2, 1-7. Remember, Paul wants us to understand who we are in Christ. He wants us to understand this so that our affections, our emotions, all of those glorious 
things inside of us, that feeling component of humanity at the soul level, all those affections, and then our actions will be properly affected and directed. Because we're going to get to chapter 4, and again, there's going to be plenty for us to do. But Paul's emphasis in these first three chapters is who you are, because remember, who you are determines what you do. And so I want to continue to invite you to drink deeply of your identity in Christ. And be prepared from that to be mobilized for the work of the kingdom. So, point number one, asking this question, who were we? Who were we? And just the presupposition in that question is that perhaps everybody in this room is in the status of being in Christ. That could be a bad assumption. Because many of you may be like me at the age of 20, sitting in a room, pretending to be a chaperone in a youth retreat. The gospel wrecked my life. And the discovery was, you are not in Christ. And He radically transformed me in that moment. So there may be some of you here, who for the first time, the gospel will wreck you. And please, Lord, let it be. So the assumption is maybe we're all already understanding who we were. Maybe not. And so I'm just admitting the weakness of my question. Okay? In hopes that maybe this question may wreck some of you today for the glory of Jesus and for your joy. Who were we? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit does not work in sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not a pretty picture. We were dead in trespasses. Trespasses, falling by the wayside. Fault, error. Our sin, missing the scope and purpose for which we were created. We were dead in that. The state of man from the fall is we are dead. And listen, God told us this in Genesis. The day you eat of it, you will partially die and part of you will stay alive and it will stay functioning. No. The day you eat of it, you will die. Adam, Eve, the day you rebel against me, you will die and all of your descendants will die Death will be introduced into the dirt, to the air, and into your genes. And everything will no longer function. You will die, Adam. And so all of us, being in Adam, are dead in trespasses. We've missed the point of which we were created. Man actually believes, apart from Christ, he was made for himself. And the decisions that we make are for us. And they're for our pursuit alone. Assuming that somehow joy can't be found in Christ. And so we go our own way. Evidencing the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We've missed the mark of who we are, what we're created for. We've fallen by the wayside. We're dead. This is a little quote uh, here for you. From John R.W. Stott. One of my favorite dead guys. He says this. We should not hesitate to reaffirm that life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. 
that those who live are dead even while they are living. The Walking Dead, great series. A lot of truth. Because apart from Christ, that's exactly what we are. Dead. Do not understand the, the purpose for which we were created. Miss the mark. Totally, completely dead. But he also says here, he goes further and he describes the nature of this deadness. He says, we were following the course of the world. The word following is actually just a preposition. And it literally means down with or according to. We're down with the course of this world. In other words, in our deadness, we're okay with the walking in the system of a world that is contrary to Christ. This world system that John and 1 John is going to describe as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride and possession. That is the course. That is what we're down with. Apart from Christ, we're dead. And in our deadness, we are okay with walking in that system. Manipulated by what we see, what we feel. And the desire to pursue it to our own death. You ever watch someone that you love and you want to see them embrace the gospel and you look at the decisions they make and you go, my goodness, why can't you see that is devastating? Because they're down with it. They're good with walking in that course because they're dead. The reason you see is because you've been made alive. They are dead. Completely incapable. This word, world, that in our deadness we're down with, is a word that Paul uses in the Greek New Testament, or is found in the Greek New Testament. Paul doesn't use it all these times. John uses it a lot. Paul uses it. But it's found 186 times in the Greek New Testament. In almost every instance, it has an evil connotation. Linked with the phraseology here, the course of this world or the course of this age, this language means this present evil age. In Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Meaning, those in their death, walking or down with the course of this world, are walking in a manner and in a way that Jesus died to deliver you from. Why? Because it will end in your ultimate destruction. That's what we are apart from Christ. But Paul takes it further. He says, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Wow. Wow. Apart from Christ, we're following Satan. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Who is the one that's in charge of this celestial area, this sphere in which the spiritual is always taking place? Satan. And he says, in our dead state, following the course of this world, we are walking according to him. Satan. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is devastating language. Meaning those who are dead in their sins are walking with Satan. Walking according to his way. And he is at work in those who are disobedient. And they're willfully walking in that dead and disobedient state. Walking with Satan. 
This is why the way of death is so appealing because their master is a master of death and death is what they want because that's what they're born into. That's us apart from Christ. And then he goes on and he says, among whom we all once lived. Okay? This is a beautiful language here and I get nerdy on you. It's aorist passive. It's kind of a Past tense, passive. We all once lived. Because his audience is a church at Ephesus. And he's contrasting to them what they were as opposed to what they are. And so there's a little hope here. This is what you were. You lived. Past tense. And it's passive in the sense of this is what you were born into. This is what you inherited from Adam. These are the devastating consequences of the fall. But you once lived that way. And there's a little hope introduced that you're not there anymore. It's good news, right? Hopefully for you this morning, this is really good news. You once lived there. But where did we once live? We once lived in the passion of our flesh. Wow. Lived in the passions, strong desires of our flesh. Nice Bible word. Flesh. Metaphorically, it has the idea of the body separated from the soul. And the body being corrupted by sin and ruled by sin and at odds with a redeemed soul. And he says, in our deadness, we lived according to an unredeemed set of strong passions that drove our decision making. In other words, fallen dead desires drive our passions and we are so ready to follow them. The dead, those without Christ, are dominated by the world. They're dominated by Satan. They're dominated by a fallen, unredeemed set of desires that are strong. The world system dominates from the outside with the lies and beliefs and values contrary to God's kingdom. The flesh dominates from the inside and Satan dominates from the world beyond. And this is why last week we looked at Colossians 2.8. People are taken captive by this. And they're in captivity. The state of fallen man is a perfect storm. Outside, inside, and beyond. Devastating. But But he goes further. He's not done. He carries out... The desires of the body and mind. So not only are you living, if you're dead in sin, in the passions of the flesh, you then carry out those desires of the body and mind. In other words, you are held captive by the carrying out of a fallen state. Then he finishes this off with this devastating statement, you were by nature children of wrath. In other words, your natural state is you're an object of wrath. Rightly so, because God said the day you eat of it, you will die, Adam. Don't do it. And you've heard me say this before. I think it's easy to read in Genesis that statement and read it sort of benignly. The day you eat of it, you will die. We move on to the next verse. Not thinking, no, the day you eat of it, you will die. Cain will kill Abel. There will be a devastating flood to bring justice And by my mercy, I'll save one in his family, but I'm going to rot everybody else. We think Noah's Ark is pretty. Little animal sticking their head out of the boat and a nice little breeze blowing and they're floating on the water. Not the dead and bloating bodies in the water. Right? 
rightly so objects of wrath because you, when you had the capacity, picked evil. And as a result, there was death introduced, Adam. Cancer. Disease. Sickness. Murder. Adultery. By nature. Children of wrath. That's what you are. Apart from Christ. See, people who are captive in a fallen state are 1 Corinthians 2.14 type of folks. And this is what Paul says about them. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And why can't he understand them? Because his spirit's dead. Can't see, can't perceive, can't know, incapable. See, the fallen state of man is not good and completely opposed to the truth. And Paul's description of fallen man is actively suppressing the truth, Romans 1.18. It is an active, natural state to oppress the truth of God. Fallen man, though he denies it, knows there's a God, but they don't give thanks to Him and their foolish hearts are darkened further, Romans 1.21, right? Romans 1.25, fallen man has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Man in his fallen state continues the rebellion and is in essence in full idolatry. You understand atheist worship? You understand atheism has a meta narrative? You know who atheists worship? Themselves. They are the object of their affections. They are the end for which they do everything, meaning the object of their worship is them. Everybody worships. The question is what is the object of your worship or who is the object of your worship? Atheism's meta-narrative is biological evolution and sociological evolution because everybody needs to know, why am I here? Nobody doesn't ask that question. They just answer it from a system that's either broken or the truth of God found in Jesus Christ. So man is worshiping. He's exchanged the truth for a, for a lie. He's fallen. He's an object of wrath. And he continues... The rebellion. This was our state apart from Christ. You feel the devastating weight of that? Remember I told you last week, what we seek to do in preaching the gospel, global and local, is to release captives from this. To release captives from this. Because this is the state they're in. This is who they are. And the reality is, God must be just. And so therefore... Man in his fallen state is in a devastating and dire place. You see, ultimate questions and ultimate answers have to be given by fallen man. So when he answers those questions, those answers can cause problems, right? And this is what happens when the world system answers ultimate questions. Just give you some examples here. Here, here are the ultimate questions. Questions of origin. Where did everything come from, right? We've got to ask and answer that question. Everybody does. Identity. Who am I? What about meaning and purpose? Why are we here? What about issues of ethics? How am I supposed to live? What about destiny? What happens when we die? You see, the world system, that system contrary to the truth of Jesus Christ, answers those questions. And this is where we were. And this is why we are dealing with people who are in captivity to this kind of thinking. And this is why the gospel is powerful, because it can rescue people from this type of thinking. But when you ask and answer these questions from a wrong worldview, there are devastating global consequences. And this is the battle that we were in. You see, there are 
some broad categories from which you can answer these questions. Naturalism, theism, or transcendentalism, which the goal of this talk is not to unpack all of that, just so you know the language and be aware. But the consequences for humanity when answering these ultimate questions in a spiritually dead state can be devastating. For example, if I don't believe there's anything beyond the natural world, then where I came from and where I'm going is of no consequence. You tracking? If there's nothing beyond the natural world, then where I came from and where I'm going, irrelevant. And who I am is just a highly evolved animal. Because I have no purpose outside of myself. There's nothing to determine what I am. I'm just a highly evolved animal. Then my meaning is identified by me alone. And if my purpose seems to be less in this physical life, then guess what? My suffering has no meaning. And since there's no ultimate authority outside this world to answer to when I die, then how I live is totally and completely up to me. Therefore, when I die, it's all over. So my job and my goal is to maximize this life as much as I can because there's nothing else. Right? This is the type of thinking that we once were in. This is the type of thinking that we once dwelled in and was dead and led to further devastating deep death. What are the results of this kind of thinking that we used to live in? And what are the results that we have to be aware that we're combating? What about issues such as physicians-assisted suicide? Right? Because suffering has no purpose. Because there's no God. Right? And I'm the ultimate captain of my fate, master of my soul, so it's my job to end it. Right? Because there's no God. There's no purpose in my suffering, so let's just end it. See, the gospel has very tangible, practical application at the hard life level. This is, this is where we used to dwell. These are some of the results we could come to conclusions on because we're dead. And our thinking is broken. This is the battle we're in. What about Marxist, Leninist philosophy and, and theology even? And the mass execution of all people who are weaker. Who are the antithesis to the revolution, right? Because... There's no purpose beyond us. We determine what's right and wrong. If you're in the way, then it's okay to exterminate you. Thus, the millions of lives lost in the communist revolution. What about abortion and euthanasia? What about Margaret Sanger and the practice of eugenics? Control human breeding by keeping desirable traits and extinguishing the undesirable ones, right? You understand that Margaret Sanger's organization, Planned Parenthood, is one of the largest government-sponsored ethnic cleansing campaigns ever existing? You understand that? These are consequences. But by the way, before we get... This is where we once lived. These are natural consequences to thinking dead. This is what happens when dead people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, living according to the pattern of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the sons at work, or the one at work, and the sons of disobedience. This isn't good logical thinking from that perspective. If you're dead, these are the conclusions you're going to come up against and come to. And as those who've been made alive, we need to be aware. This is where we were. This is where Maybe you found this morning you're there still and your thinking needs to be corrected. Think like a Christian. And we're about to see who we are. But this is what we were. Do you feel the contrast? Do you feel the weight? 
I think that's Paul's intention. This is what we were. And since meaning is an objective, right? Meaning resides in the individual. Since there's nothing outside of me to determine meaning, then meaning is up to me to, to determine. Therefore, Hitler executing Jews was no big deal. Why? Because, well, they're Jews. And for him, Jew equaled less than human. But if there's nothing outside of him, who would he tell him he's wrong? He's the determiner of meaning, right? So with no objective truth to hold him to a fixed ethic, he made devastating choices. That's what it means to me. As John Stone Street says, when words lose meaning, people die. This is who we were. And here is my point in, in walking you down this little path. This is what we were capable of. This is the kind of stuff produced by the fall. The day you eat of it, you will die. This is what we were. This is what the rebellion produced. But I'm glad and super, super happy Paul doesn't end in verse 3. So let's ask the question, who are we now? Who are we now? Perhaps the starkest contrast in the Bible is presented starting in verse 4. And it starts with the proper word to show us the contrast. But God. But God. Were it not for the grace of God, that's what we were. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Who are we now? First, we're objects of mercy. We're objects of mercy, compassion. We're objects of love, affectionate regard, and goodwill. God's benevolence. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. We're objects of mercy. We're objects of love. Then He says we were made alive together with Christ. Made alive. Meaning we were dead. And when you're thinking dead, this is what it produces. But because God is merciful and full of love toward us, He made us alive together with Christ. And as a result, we're now 1 Corinthians 2, 12, 13, 15, and 16 kind of people. Let's take a look at what that is. I didn't plan on reading those. I just sort of referenced them, but why not? 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. Verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Because we are objects of mercy and love and we've been made alive together with Christ, we now have Holy Spirit and we're able to discern and understand and interpret spiritual truths because we have the mind of Christ. We no longer think 
like a person in the passions of their flesh, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We are now in Christ. We've been made alive. We're objects of mercy and love. And we have the mind of Christ. Then he says, we have been saved. But God be rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even we're dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's good southern Bible terminology, isn't it? I've been saved. And we hear that, and perhaps if you weren't raised in this culture, you think that's strange terminology. That's Bible terminology. The idea of saying I've been saved means I've been rescued from something that was going to be really bad. Right? If I've been saved from something, that means it was going to get me. But somebody snatched me out of that danger and saved me. In Bible terminology, the idea of being saved is I have been absolutely, utterly rescued. Because remember, we were by object, we were objects of wrath by nature. Meaning God was going to justly execute wrath on me. But He in His rich mercy saved me. He rescued me by grace. Meaning He took pleasure and He showed favor and He delivered me and rescued me from the danger that I was in. And He raised us up. This use of the word raised in verse 6 is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. This particular word. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Meaning we were dead, but Christ made us alive and raised us up. And He raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly, celestial, spiritual dimension and places. Meaning, this is beautiful language. The Ephesian church was a place that was completely subject to the occult. Read the book of Acts. When these people converted, they came to Christ. They took their occultic books and they burned them in the street. They had, the, they, had, they, had, they had all kinds of spiritual challenges in the, the church at Ephesus. And their idea was that the spirits rule in that celestial realm. And they were completely subject to that realm. And they lived in fear. And Paul comes and says, Jesus is seated there now. And you have been seated with Him. Meaning there is nothing for you to fear in the spiritual realm because you've been made alive, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and you're no longer subject to the enemy. You're no longer subject to Satan. You're no longer subject to the spiritual world around you because you have the mind of Christ and Holy Spirit Spirit dwelling in you. This is our position in Christ. This is really good news. Because the reality is that every single one of us in this room, whether we realize it or not, whether naturalism still has a hold in our soul, or whether or not the gospel has transformed that part of us in sanctification, you need to realize that the spiritual world is real. The ideas that come into your mind aren't always put there by Jesus. And they didn't come out of a flesh that's completely redeemed yet. Ideas and thoughts are constantly bombarding our souls. And how we process them through the proper filter determines our actions sometimes. And what we've got to understand here is we're no longer subject to that. We've been raised and seated with Christ. And our position is object of mercy, object of love, raised up, seated, saved, redeemed, fixed, repaired. And we are with Christ and in Christ. And so therefore, we have the mind of Christ and can discern truth from error and therefore make proper decisions 
that are decisions of life. That's us. That's the church. Jesus being rich in mercy rescued us while we were not looking for it. Although we're in Christ, we're still waging a war. And we'll have to fight against the world system of lies propagated in the world around us and the views of the world that seek to carry out the rebellion. And we're going to have to fight the battle. We're going to have to armor up in the spiritual struggle. And we're going to have to learn to put a sword to our fallen flesh and walk in the reality of who we are. I dare say that all of us in this room today wrestle walking in the reality of who we are in Christ. You see, Paul talked about this in Romans 7. The fact that I still have a fallen flesh that one day will be redeemed. It's going to be fixed. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to give me a new body that's no longer broken. Good news. But I've got this problem because, you see, my, my soul's been awakened. I've been made alive in Christ. I've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I have the mind of Christ. So I think and I feel right things. But this sucker has a hard time getting in line with it, does it not? And there's a constant struggle. There's a constant battle. If there's no battle, you need to come to Christ and be transformed. You need to receive the gospel. You need to pray and tell Jesus you want to be transformed. And and He'll put His Spirit in you, save you. But if you feel the struggle, that's good evidence you're in the kingdom. Because you're thinking right things, you know right things, but the body just does not want to follow suit. Luther said it like this, the flesh is wont to grumble dreadfully. You try to do what's right and it will fight you. It will dominate you. It will wrestle you to the ground and put a chokehold on you. And every single one of us wrestle walking in this flesh. And what we've got to understand is this war is real. But we have been seated with Christ. Spirit dwells in us. And and, and just throw this, this isn't in the notes, but winning is possible in Christ. Winning is possible. Sin does not have to dominate us anymore. We, by the power of the Spirit of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we can put to death the deeds of the body in Christ. So church, understand, that's who we are now. You're not dead anymore. If you're in Christ, you are alive. If you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. If you're in Christ, you're objects of mercy and love. Greatest lie Satan foists on us daily is God can't love me. Jesus can't love me. Yes, He does. If you're alive, it's because you're an object of love and mercy. If He has saved you, if you are alive in Christ, you are an object of mercy. You don't have to be subject to the rulers in the heavenly places. As a matter of fact, they are subject to you now in Christ. You have the mind of Christ. That is our position of being in Christ. We were dead, we're now alive. We walked the course of this world, now we walk the course of the kingdom. Well, here's the last question I want to ask, and it's why were we rescued? Why did God rescue me? First part of verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. 4a, Why did I get rescued? Because Father is merciful. And that's his answer here. But God being rich in mercy. 
Father's merciful. You see, what we've got to understand is God is obliged to save no one. But because He is merciful, He chooses to save some. So why were you rescued? Why was I rescued? Father's merciful. Second part of verse 4. Because of the great love with which He loved us. We studied this in chapter 1. Father loved us before the foundation of the world with a love that was amazing and rich and deep. Why was I rescued? He's merciful and He loved me. And I want you to hear this and I want you to hear it clearly. Father's love for me and Father's love for you now and in the past and in the future has never been due to any foreseen goodness or good decisions we make. Father's love is completely because He loved us with an elective love to rescue us and present us to Christ as a bride without spot or blemish. We need to hear this clearly. If God rescued me because of anything good, He would see that I would do. It would be up to me to maintain it by continuing to do good. But Christ came and died in my place for my sin, took the wrath for my rebellion... And the reason it's essential that we affirm Christ's perfect living and His death, burial, and resurrection is because in that moment, the great transaction took place, Romans 3, 21-26, where Jesus died for sin so that all those who believe the gospel will receive the perfection of Christ and He took all of our guilt. It's not on you or I to maintain it. He maintains it for us. Why did He save you? Why did He save me? Because He's merciful and He's full of love. That's all. You didn't do anything to get it, and you can't do anything to lose it. I continue to get this question. I get it all the time. And it's a question birthed out of this idea that salvation is something you partly achieve. What happens if you commit suicide? You go to hell if you're a Christian? No. Why? Because it has nothing to do with your actions. Is it a sin? Yeah. So is stealing. So is lust. What if I die in the middle of having stolen something and not returned it and paid restitution? Am I going to hell? No, because it's not up to me. It's not my righteous deeds. My righteous deeds are as filthy rags, I've been told. My best is still not enough. That's why Christ came to die. The perfect Son of God pays for my sin so that by belief in Him, I get His perfection. He takes my sin and I'm counted as a child of God. I'm adopted in the family. This is why it's called good news. The bad news is you were dead. You walked in your trespasses and sin according to the world system. You walked according to the prince, the power of the air, the sun, or the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And you were by nature objects of wrath, but God being rich in love and mercy. The bad news is you were dead. The good news is He made you alive and had nothing to do with you. And therefore, keeping you alive has nothing to do with you. I'm thankful for that. If I had to earn it, I've lost it four times today. And will probably be ten before the day's over. Because if the Falcons lose, I'm going to lose my mind. Can't handle another losing season. Y'all think I'm joking. My family's going, Jesus, please let them win. God, please let them win. We can't, we can't take this until Wednesday. It takes me about Wednesday to recover. 
I'm not lying. I need prayer. <laughs> I can't maintain it, guys. This is really good news. I was dead. He made me alive. Why? Not because anything he saw would do good or bad, but because he's full of mercy. And Father's full of love. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And He adds this statement because there's this sense in which maybe He feels they will object. And He puts this little aside in there. And He says, by grace you've been saved. To, to, To be clear. Just... Paul wants to make it clear. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Maybe the objection is, but you don't understand. You don't understand. I was into the occult. I, I was in deep. I've done everything I'm not supposed to do, Paul. By grace, you've been saved. And it answers the objection. It had nothing to do with your performance. The Father is gracious to the objects of His mercy and love. Even while I was dead, He made me alive together with Christ. This happened while I was dead, not due to my savvy exercise of an unencumbered will, but because God is rich in mercy and love. And when I wasn't looking, He found me. And then he says in verse 7, So that, purpose clause, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Why? The ultimate reason? So that in the coming ages, future, tomorrow, five years from now, when you die, In the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable, in other words, not measurable, riches of His grace and kindness toward me in Christ. Do you you feel that? All I'll ever get is kindness. That wrecks my soul. Because I don't deserve kindness. And if you will be honest, you recognize you don't either. We believe the gospel. I'm trusting you have. But we all recognize that I don't keep the standard, do we? But He made me alive because He's merciful, full of love. By grace He saved me. He raised me and seated me with Christ in the heavenly places. So did in the coming ages. His immeasurable riches of kindness would be showed toward me. Listen, you can't out the immeasurable grace and kindness of Jesus Christ. Some people say that that's a deadly teaching. Because it gives license to sin. And I want to say to you in the words of 1 John chapter 3. Those who look at the grace of Christ and enjoy their sin more than Jesus have never met Jesus. But those who are in Christ and fall into their sin and look at their sin and weep and ache over the fact that you can't get away from it 
and you desperately want to, that's a person whose soul's been made alive. Because you don't want it anymore. But for some reason, in that fallen flesh, it's got a grip on you. And you know what you do? You do what 1 John 3 says you do. You repent and you move on. Trusting the grace and kindness of Jesus Christ. You know what the reality is? Those in Christ hate their sin and seek to run from it as far and as hard and fast as they possibly can. So we don't sacrifice the truth of the gospel for the sake of holiness. We uphold the gospel because it produces holiness. How did David in Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guys, that, that's who we are now. Dead, alive. Object of wrath, object of mercy. No father now adopted with a heavenly father. Saved, rescued, child of God forever. So what's our response to this? How are we supposed to respond to this kind of stuff? Romans 12.1 Paul spends 11 chapters dealing with the intricacies of the beautiful doctrine of justification. And then the last part of the book, chapter 12 through chapter 16, Paul deals with the outworking of a life of worship. And here's the transition verse. Verse 1 of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Therefore? Yeah. The glorious work of the gospel. I appeal to you on these 11 chapters of the unpacking of the justifying work of Jesus Christ in you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says that by the presentation of my life to God, it's holy and acceptable. Because I was good enough? No, because Jesus made it good enough. And I do that as my worship. It's my worship. How do we respond to this salvation? We lay our lives down before Christ and say, not mine, yours. Not my opinion, yours. Not my feelings, yours. Not my desire, yours. So that in everything... We seek to be as saturated with Christ and we are willing to lay all those things down and have them come underneath, united in Christ. So my invitation to you is because you were dead, but now you've been made alive. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. It's holy and acceptable to God as your worship. But lay it down. Listen, one of the most freeing things, and it's a total paradox of the gospel. One of the most freeing realities of the gospel is to come to this realization that you have no rights. You completely and totally belong to Jesus because the price he paid for you was steep. And in love for him, because the great love with which he loved you, you lay your life and your rights down before Christ. And if necessary, you're willing to die for him because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so you lay everything down before him and you say, Jesus, bring everything in me underneath the unity of who you are in the body of Christ. And you know what? Worship as a song will spring out of that and you can't stop it. You can't.
one of the reasons we do worship the way we do at this church is we believe our theology of worship is that the song of the mouth and soul, the soul produces the song, comes out the mouth, is a result of seeing and savoring Christ. Therefore, worship is a response we make to God. Make sense? We see, we respond in song. Right? Tracking with that? That's why we do all, most of the music on the backside. We declare Him. We see Him in the elements. We respond in a song. We hear from Him in the Word, and then we respond in song again. See Him respond. See Him respond. Tracking? This morning, I prayed that, that you would see glory, that Spirit would cause you to see glory. And I hope He's achieved that in you, that you've seen where you were, where you are. And now, I ask and pray that He would cause you to lay your life down, but that would work itself out in a song. Listen, there's not much globally that happens among people when it comes to singing in response to their God. Why? Because there are no other gods. And those songs can't be produced out of the depths of a redeemed heart. But there's this unique thing that happens in Christianity where people see God and they spring forth in song. They write songs, they play songs, they sing songs. So listen, don't come at this last portion of the service as if it were for you to consume. It is irrelevant on whether you like it or not. It is not for you. It is a sacrifice of I lay myself down before Jesus and together we proclaim His excellencies because He made me alive. I'm His. I respond to Him. This is His time, not yours. You understand that? This is not your time. This is not for your consumption. This is for His consumption. And the only requirement is that it just be right. Not pretty. The greatest thing that can happen to some of us is to get our rear ends over the ocean into places where it's not pretty and be part of worshiping the Lord where there's no fan blowing, where the temperature's not controlled, and we have a sound system and we've got a comfortable chair. But where it's hot or it's freezing, there is no temperature control. And if they hear you, they may kill you. That'll change your view. you got to understand, our response to Jesus is our response to Jesus, not because we like it, but because we owe it to Him. Listen, you're not guilty today. You're a child adopted into the family. Don't withhold the worship due Him. Lay your life down. And when you lay your life down, everything else will just kind of bubble out of that. Because you recognize, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Jesus, this is yours. You understand how that will affect everything? Not just Sunday morning worship. Tomorrow morning when you get out of bed. This, this is the struggle of the Christian life. This is the struggle. This is the battle of walking with Christ. Is Because everything in our fallenness that remains in our flesh and the world system is going to tell us lies. And we're going to buy it. And our heart doesn't beat with it, but we're going to conflict over it, and it's that constant battle. This is the easiest place to win it together. So for just a few minutes, can you lay yourself down and say, Jesus, this is yours? I'll make this as a sacrifice to you. And maybe that'll spill over to tomorrow. And I might make it back here next week, by God's grace, to get it again. Let's pray. Father, uh, I'm a weak and flawed individual. Uh, I can't.
can't get most of this right on most days, but what I do get and understand today is that I was dead, but you made me alive. Lord, you know why I went to... You know I, I went on that retreat. <laughs> and I've been honest with some people on why I went on that retreat. And some of these sitting in this room has heard that story. 20-year-old fool. And while I was looking for something absolutely devastating to my soul, you met me when I wasn't looking. And you wrecked me. And I, all I got today is to say thank you. Because I was looking to wreck my soul and you were looking to rescue me. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for making me alive. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would accomplish that in your people here. Lord, if there's, God, if there's any, any soul that hadn't been awakened to life, Holy Spirit, would you accomplish that? Would you rip off the blinders, the good news of Christ, rip off the blinders that, so they can see? Would you raise them up and cause their soul to become alive? Quicken them. Make them alive. And cause their lips to respond and worship and receive you as king. Lord, for those who've been awakened, I pray, God, that you would not allow them to hold any right up before you as if, well, we have any. But Lord, cause your people to lay themselves down before you, the king of the universe. And make much of you together. Lord, would you fuel our week with this? I desperately need that. Give strength. And help me now. And help us all. We pray in Jesus' name.